sit still. I want to cast a spell. And don't fidget. You know how fidgeting upsets me. Well, no, you don't, but you will. Yes, indeed. It's easy to upset people my age. I'm much older than you. I'm also dead. I died hundreds of years before you were even born. But a little thing like that won't make a lot of difference. That's what being a magician is all about. About the spell. You, you can't see me, of course. You can't hear me. But you can read what I write. Yes, indeed. Are you nervous? You ought to be. It's a very powerful spell. I don't do this one very often. It takes too long. Some spells you just mumble a word. Others you just wave a wand. But this one, you have to write a whole spell book. The book you're holding. Just for one spell. I'm nearly too old for this length of spell, but the king insists. Something has to be done about Anselm. You're going to have to help, you know. You can't just sit there reading the spell book. Not if you're going to be a, a big-time magician like me and spend your life being bossed around by the king. No, help is needed. I don't have a body in your time. That's the trouble. So I need an assistant to fetch things for me. You. You're my assistant. Apprentice, really. Sit still, don't fidget. You'll have to get a quill and some parchment. A goose quill. Peacock quills are pretentious. We'll leave that sort of nonsense to wizards, like Anselm. A goose quill, and a little knife to sharpen it, and some powders and water to mix the ink. Or a pencil and paper would do if you can't find a goose. You'll also need two dice. Or one if you can't find two. One will do nicely, but two will be better if you can find them. Ordinary dice, six sides, little spots. You must have them somewhere. Bring them back here and between us we'll cast the spell. Back? Oh good, good, good. Well, I better tell you about the spell, I suppose, now that you're my apprentice. I'm going to cast it over you. I don't panic, it's the sort of spell that has to be cast over somebody. Otherwise, nothing ever happens. Nothing at all. Complete waste of a good spell. I'll tell you what the spell does. It takes you away from where you are now. Away from your time. Well, it takes most of you. The inside you. It leaves your body where it is, so if your parents look over, they won't know that you're gone. But you will be. Yes, indeed. The inside of you won't be in your own time at all. It'll be in mine. When the inside of you gets to my time, I'll just pop it into another body. Quite a nice one, a young person, much like yourself, except better looking and stronger. I can't make you any smarter, but uh, you'll just have to put up with that. Once you're in this other body, You'll just be able to move around in it and get in it to do things, just like it was your own. You'll be able to see what things were like in my time. I think I can even arrange it so you can meet the king. King Arthur. Arthur Pendragon, son of Uther. Quite a nice man if he wasn't so bossy. Younger than me, but then everybody is. You'll also get to meet the knights and have adventures. Uh, and you may even get to meet me, 
if I'm not too busy. You can go back to your own body at any time, of course. You just go. It's very simple. And when you want to come back to my time, you just continue reading the spell book where you left off. No trouble at all. You'll enjoy living in my time. The food's better, for one thing. And there's a lot of action. There's quests and battles and adventures. That sort of thing. Knights in armor clanking around all over the place. Horses. A lot of horses. Um, castles or keeps fortresses and towers and peasants smelly lot we even have a few dragons left not many but in your time they've died out altogether there's a lot of magic around in my time much more than in yours the conditions here are better for working magic oh you'll enjoy living in my time for a time if you don't get yourself killed well, that's the deal. That's the spell. But there are a couple of things that you have to do before we're off, and both of these things involve arithmetic. Before you arrive in my time, you won't have any life, and no life means you can't do anything, which isn't much of an adventure. So the thing to do is get a bit of life together before you set off. I'll tell you what to do. First you take your dice, and you roll them together. Now add the two scores. And now multiply your answer by four. Write down the answer because that's the number of life points you'll have when on your adventure, when the spell is cast. You'll find you'd, you won't have less than eight or more than 48. And I know that because I'm a magician. If you're not very happy with your score, then roll the dice again and see if that's any better. In fact, you can roll the dice three times altogether and pick the best score out of the three. And if you've only got one dice to roll with, that's no problem. Instead of rolling the two dice, just roll the one dice twice and then add the scores together and then multiply by four. It's the same thing in the end. And I nearly forgot something. You'll, you'll have to learn to fight. You won't last long in my time if you don't know how to fight. Everybody does. Knights who can't fight get killed off every five minutes. You find bits of them all over the place. Can't have my apprentice ending up like that. The way you fight in my time is a bit peculiar. You have to roll dice. Two dice together, or one dice twice, doesn't matter which. If you score more than six on your two rolls added together, it means you've hit your enemy. Landed him a whooper on the snooter, whatever. How about that? If you score six or less, it means you swung wildly and missed altogether. It happens. When I was a lad and fighting all the time, I often missed. Now supposing you do hit him, what then? Well, for every point you score above six, you do him that much damage. If you roll seven, you do him one point of damage. If you roll eight, you do him two points of damage and so on. But don't cheat. Cheating messes up the spell. Every point of damage you'd score against your enemy is subtracted from his life points, unless he's wearing armor. In which case, damage is scored against his armor until you broke through it, after which all further damage is scored against his life points. Now, pay attention. This is important. When your enemy has only five life points left, he will fall down unconscious. If he has no life points left, you've killed him deceased as a doornail. 
All this is what happens if you're pounding away at your enemy with your fists. If you happen to be hacking away at him with a sword, or poking at him with a spear, or bonking him with a club, you'll score extra damage. But don't worry about that just now. You'll learn how to use swords and things when you come into my time. You'll also learn magic. But that's another story. Fighting is easy, isn't it? In fact, so far as I can see, there's only one real problem with it. When you're thumping away at your enemy, he or she, women are very dangerous in my time, will almost certainly be thumping you back. Turn and turn about. That's the way it goes. Your opponent will fight exactly the way you do, by throwing dice. Except you will have to throw them for him, of course, since you're the one with the dice. If he throws above six, he's managed to hit you, and every point above six scores one damage against you, subtracted from your life points, or your armor, and then your life points, until you have five left uh, when you fall unconscious, or none left, and that's when you're dead. Alright, well, that's all you need to know about fighting for the time being, but before I start to cast my spell, I'd, I'd better tell you about sleeping. Sleep is the way to get your life points back. You can sleep at any time in my time, except in the middle of a fight, of course. And every time you sleep successfully, you get back two dice rolls worth of life points. But there is a snag, though. To go to sleep, you roll one dice. And if it comes up a one, a two, a three, or a four, you're headed for the dream time, which you'll find at the back of the spellbook. And in the dream time, you're quite likely to lose even more life points, maybe even get yourself killed. But that's the way the bomb brack bounces. When you need a couple of dice rows of life points, you take your chances with the dream time and you just hope you roll a five or a six. Oh, you nearly forgot something else. When you come to my time, your name will be Pip. I can't help that. It's the name of the body I picked for you. When the king was young, they called him Wart. Don't ever dare tell him I told you, though. Finally, you got to learn about experience. To collect one point of experience every time you win a fight or solve a puzzle. Now count them carefully, because every 20 experience points gives you one permanent life point. And you can add a permanent life point to your total life points even if it brings you higher than you were when you started out. What's more, you can take up to 10 permanent life points with you into other adventures and add them to whatever life points you happen to roll up. And by the by, a really heroic deed can often earn you more than one experience point. This is nearly everything you need for your adventure. You can learn how to use bribery and how to test for friendly reactions as you go along. These rules and all of the others. They're on the card at the back of the book, which you can cut out and use it as a bookmark. Uh, now, the spell. It was a wonderful age to live in, despite the dangers. Pendragon's son, King Arthur by name, was on the throne of Avalon, ruling by the might of his great sword Excalibur, which he had drawn from the stone as a boy when strong men could not move it. Arthur brought peace of a sort to the kingdom. 
Before his time, the local lords fought and squabbled amongst themselves like geese, so that there was scarcely a minute's quiet from one year's end to the next. But Arthur changed it all, with just one marvellous invention, chivalry. A strange thing, chivalry, or strange when Arthur introduced it. We've become accustomed to it now, so that it seems like a law of nature, like gravity, or the way that birds fly south in the summer. But in those days it was a strange idea. Then, if, if you were strong and wanted something that belonged to somebody who was weak, you just took it. And if you were a knight, and you saw a maiden being carried off like by a dragon, you let it eat her. Aye, and if you were that same maiden, the chances were you let it eat you, instead of sticking up for yourself as any self-respecting maiden would. But Arthur's strange idea of chivalry changed all that. It introduced fair play and common courtesy and decency and justice and good behaviour and self-sufficiency and a lot of other fine things that were sadly lacking in Avalon, even in Pendragon's day. It, it did not introduce cricket, as many silly people claim. But it did introduce jousting, which was nearly as good. And if anybody tells you jousting is a violent, brutal sport, simply because brave knights will try to knock each other off their horses, you just point out that it was a great deal better than what they got up to before jousting was invented. That hardly bears thinking about. The centre of all this chivalry was something else Arthur invented, the table round, or round table as people insist on calling it. There really was a round table, made of oak mainly, with a teak inlay, big enough for a dozen or so knights to sit around quite comfortably, even though knights are quite bulky in their armour. But the round table was more than that, much more. The round table was a way of life. And it was a way of life that appealed greatly to a certain class of person. When Arthur first set up the round table, even before the master carpenter finished setting the inlays, knights from all over Avalon were clamouring to join it. There was even one knight who travelled all the way from France, no mean feat in bad weather, to find out if there was a place for him. His name was Monsieur Sir Lancelot du Lac, and as it turned out, there was a place for him, and an important place at that. Although they did make him change his name a little so the English could pronounce it, Sir Lancelot of the Lake. With so many knights clamouring to join, Arthur could afford to pick the best for his round table. And so he did. There was never so great a collection of knights since the Romans were chased out. Galahad, Percival, Launcelot, Bedivere, Guinevere. The list goes on and on. Except that Guinevere wasn't exactly a knight. She was Arthur's queen. But she often sat at the round table for the sake of the excellent advice she gave, and the keen brain in her head. There was another who sat at the round table, though he, he was not a knight either. He was what they called a druid which is a sort of a priest and a sort of a miracle monger, all rolled into one. His name was Merlin, which might tell you that he was Welsh. The common people called him Merlin the Magician. The knights, who were mostly afraid of him, called him Sir. Arthur, who knew better, called him Silly Old Fool, but that was really a term of affection from the king. After all, it was Merlin who set the sword in the stone and helped make Arthur what he is today. That's the truth of the matter, although another wizard by the name of Anselm took to claiming that he was the one responsible, 
Nobody liked Anselm much, although there were a few prepared enough to call him a liar to his face, even among the brave knights. Anselm was a nasty piece of work, and short-tempered, the sort of wizard who would blight your crops as soon as look at you. And since nobody wants their crops blighted, people tended to leave Anselm alone. The table round was set at King Arthur's court, which was at a place called Camelot. It was a remarkable sight, especially in summer, with the pennants flying from the spires, and the sunshine glinted off the polished armour of the men-at-arms. In winter, not so nice, perhaps, because the pennants droop a little in the, in the rain and the, the armour is prone to rust. But then, Arthur very seldom stayed at Camelot in winter, he usually went off to Cornwall. Not very far from Camelot, if you had a good horse to carry you, was a farm. Nothing grand, nothing large, nothing spectacular, although it was owned by a freeman, not just worked by a serf. The land was three and a half miles due north of a tiny little market village called Glastonbury, which is very near to Camelot. But the road twisted and turned so much, but by the time you reached the farm, you'd actually travelled nearer five miles than three and a half. Not that very many people ever did go to the farm. Why should they? If they wanted farm produce, they brought it in Glastonbury Market. So the farm was, it was quite isolated, and this particular farm lacked a great many home comforts, and it had next to no luxuries at all. In short, when you stop to think about it, this farm was about as far from the splendours of Camelot as you could possibly imagine. On this farm lived a young person, the adopted child of the freeman farmer, whose name was John, and John's wife Miriam, or Mary as she was more often called. This young person's name was Pip. Pip lived a quiet, uneventful life, serene, calm, peaceful, marked by the slow roll onwards of the seasons, interrupted only by the sleepy hum of summer insects or the sound of early morning birdsong. Welcome! Glad you could join this first episode of the Grail Quest Castle of Darkness. We're going to be reading through this solo fantasy gamebook by J.H. Brennan. I really love this series and I'm excited to explore it. Next week we'll be joined by the person playing Pip and we'll get into the actual story. Glad that you could join me. My name is Peter, and that was my terrible Welsh accent playing the part of Merlin. Looking forward to reading through this with you.